Thank you for joining Life Builders Church in Rainbow. We pray that this message encourages and inspires you. So this morning I wanted to talk about Psalm 1, or at least that's where it started out. Um, but Psalm 1 is pretty short, right? How much can you say about one short psalm? Um, so I'll just read verses 1 to 3. I'm assuming that this is the right button. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Blessed is the man or woman who doesn't get dragged into being friends with people that are unwise. The wicked, the sinners, the scoffers, three types of people. But I suppose if you read it quickly, you just lump them all together as bad people. That makes perfect sense, really, doesn't it? But why then does the psalmist say three different individual things unless he's really trying to emphasise bad people? The wicked are people that do evil. They devise evil plans. They carry out evil plans. Their way of life is wicked and destructive. The sinners are people that are criminals. They're called sinners because they are already labelled as guilty. They've been judged and found guilty. And the mockers or scoffers are the people that are full of pride and arrogance. They scornfully mock those that they think are less than themselves, especially people with different moral, religious or ethical beliefs. We are blessed if we don't join with these people or take their advice or speak like them or even try to live like them. And I think most of your faces are telling me that you already know this. <laughs> if you have any sense about you, you don't try and join the people that are silly. But sometimes the lines aren't so clearly drawn, are they? Sometimes it's a little bit grey. What's good? What's bad? What's acceptable? What's best? What's okay? Sometimes we don't know where that line is. I remember in grade 7 or 8 being friends with a few guys at school. I did have friends at school. <laughs> um, and they decided that they would go off the school grounds during lunch to go to this shop and they invited me to go along. I'd have no problem with going out of the school grounds at lunch and going to the shop, but I felt very uneasy about that, so I said no. And their going out to the shop lasted for a few weeks, and I literally spent probably two or three weeks by myself at lunchtime at school because I didn't go. And it was only after they came back from that little jaunt that, like all good ideas, it has its time, right? So they got bored of that, and they didn't do it anymore, and then I had friends at lunch again. It was only then that they started, the stories started coming out about shoplifting and things like this. And I was glad I didn't go. But what if I had gone? Where is the line? There's nothing inherently wrong with going to a shop, except for the school rules of going outside the grounds during lunch, probably. But the shoplifting and all the other things that they talked about that they were doing, that's just a stepping stone, isn't it? And I don't think my example is very far up the scale of evil. <laughs> Going to a shop in grade 7 is probably not 
classed as evil in most people's books, but it's still a stepping stone for those guys. It was a stepping stone to something further. And that's what they chose. Like me saying no to my friends in that circumstance, it's not enough to just choose not to do things, though. You can't just say no over and over and over. Try ignoring that open packet of chocolate that's in the fridge every time you open the door and just, just by saying no, looking at it and saying no, look at it again and say no. It's not enough to just say no. It's pretty difficult to ignore chocolate that's open in the fridge, especially if there's a lot because you know that other people won't know probably if you take a little bit. <laughs> oh dear. If I tell our four-year-old daughter to stop doing something because it's not right or wrong or it's disruptive or it's hurting other people, she says in her very best and politest and nicest voice, no, I don't want to. <laughs> or sometimes it's a high level scream, but <laughs> most of the time it's really polite. <laughs> but if I distract her with something else and then I join her in doing that, if I get out the blocks and sit on the floor, even for three minutes and join her in doing that, whatever she was doing beforehand, she can't even remember what she was doing. She hasn't just said no, she's been distracted into something else, something better. If we have in our minds or our hearts something we want more than chocolate, when we open the fridge door, we don't just say no, we choose something else instead as well, something like dark chocolate. <laughs> That's a lot better than normal chocolate, right? Eighty <laughs> percent, yeah. Oh, dear, I love dark chocolate. What does the psalmist say? He says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Say no to the counsel of the wicked and put your delight in the law of the Lord. Meditate on it day and night. Don't just say no. Replace it with something that's better. Put your energies into the word of God. The law, of the, the law that the psalmist writes about was the law that the Israelites were given by God through Moses, wasn't it? The law was that they had the law was what they had to do in order to be right with God. For the psalmist to make his the law his delight and to meditate on that day and night, that tells us that he really, really, really wants to be right with God. He's making a distinction between walking the path of the wicked and instead choosing something that will bring life, something that will mean that he can gain the blessings of God. He likens it to being like a tree planted beside a constant source of life and nourishment. Its leaves don't wither. It yields fruit in its season. God and his word are that stream, aren't they? If you're planted beside him and draw from him and his word each and every day, you'll be nourished. You'll have what you need for each day. Or for your insurance claims, as we learnt this morning, God blesses us in these things if we're plugged into him. And he can bless us outside of that. He's God. He can do as he wills. He blesses plenty of people that don't know him by touching them so that they come to know him. He's a very big God. We get to choose where we're planted, in a sense. We get to choose where we draw our life source from and what stepping stones we'll be walking on and stepping across. If you choose the stepping stones that lead closer and closer to God and you keep your roots in that stream, 
you'll find your heart blessed in ways that you couldn't even imagine over time. You'll look back and you'll see where you started when you used to read things that made no sense, when you used to pray and it was hard just to sit there and pray because your mind just went all over the place. But in time, if you persevere and you put your energies into that and you do it day and night, God blesses your heart and over that journey, your stepping stones bring you closer and closer and closer to God. It's not instant. But what about the rest of Psalm 1? We're only halfway through with those three verses. The psalmist has described the blessings that come to people that delight in God, the people that make God their focus and their hope. But the last half describes the other side of the fence. The wicked are not so, not like a tree that is, with roots and a source of life, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So this is the this is the stepping stones going the opposite direction, like my very first slide with the tree. There's a very defined line in God's eyes, wicked and righteous. And this is what happens to people that don't make God their delight the people that don't delight in his law. They're like chaff from wheat. You might remember when I preached and I had this slide with the wheat and it had all the different parts of wheat on it. The chaff is the little shell that goes around the kernel and it's useless. Unless you want to burn it, but it burns really, really quickly, like sawdust. It just blows away in the wind. It has no value. This is what the psalmist is saying these wicked people are like. When their time comes for judgment, they will not be able to stand, meaning they will be ashamed and sinners will not join with all the people that, it, that chose Jesus as their Lord, the righteous. The psalmist is talking about the end of time when God will judge all people and when he'll accept those who believe in his son Jesus into heaven and the wicked will be no more, is what the psalmist is saying. They'll be as nothing. They won't be able to gather with all the people that are going into heaven. And then in verse 6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Have you ever thought about that? What does that really mean, that the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish? The way, the path, the journey of the righteous doesn't end, doesn't perish, doesn't stop. The Lord knows it because he will be there. And we know this from Revelation chapter 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The way of the righteous lives on, doesn't it? Eternally. Because the righteous will be with God. But the way of the wicked will perish, because the former things will pass away. It will be old earth and the old heaven. And some of these things, from my mind, they start to get a little bit around the edges and I can't grasp eternity, probably not many people can, but 
I can't, if I think about it, it just gets worse and worse. <laughs> I overcomplicate it and think and think and think and try and understand things and it doesn't work so well. And the Psalms, I think, can be a little bit like that. We read them and sometimes they don't always make sense because they are classed as poetic writings. They're all poems or songs that come from someone's heart and they're expressing things as metaphors or kind of using images to portray who God is like or who the wicked are like and say what they're feeling and thinking. So I have some facts for you about Psalms. And that image on the screen is actually from one of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So that is an original psalm that you can see in that image. You can try and read it later if you want. <laughs> Good luck with that. So they're poetic writings. There's 150 in total. Some are very, very personal, aren't they? And some were written for bands or choirs to sing and play as part of a multitude of people. Originally, they were grouped into five books. And they were written by a number of people, David, Asaph, the sons of Korah, Moses, Solomon, and there's about 50, including Psalm 1, with no author written at the top, so they don't know who wrote those ones. Because they're poetic, we have to apply a certain level of interpretation um, to understand them. No different to when you were in school, your English teacher would have presented you with Shakespeare and said, what's he thinking in this? What's he feeling in that? What's he trying to say between the lines or behind that? Or maybe they gave you, uh, what's the other books? Uh, Lord of the Flies. We had to do that at school. Oh, that's a horrible book. <laughs> uh, what was the other one? There was another one. To Kill a Mockingbird? Uh, not really either. But they ask you to read these books, don't they? And then you have to interpret what's being said because some of it is images. And they ask you to think about this and draw out themes from the book. The same is with Psalms in a lot of ways. We have to think about what they're trying to say. We can't take, we can't think that we're a tree just because the psalmist says we are like a tree. You're not actually a tree because the psalmist says that. So we have to think about what the psalmist is trying to convey. When we read Psalms, we pull themes out. We pull concepts out. And God uses the imagery in them to teach us and to guide us and to encourage us, to inspire us and to warn us and convict us. While some of the words can be taken as literal, just as they are written, a lot of them are metaphors. And we need to be a little bit careful about what we take literally and what we draw themes from. And what's interesting to me is that the Psalms weren't just randomly collected into five books in the Hebrew language. They were sorted into five books. Which means that the very first Psalm, which we've read this morning, Psalm 1, is like the preface, the introduction, the little feel before the main body of writing which gives it a whole new context, doesn't it? It's not just a psalm written by a guy somewhere that we don't know. It's the introduction to all of the other 149 psalms. And the preface or the introduction to any book, like if you have a math textbook, everyone has math textbooks, right? <laughs> the introduction to that is all about math. And then the rest of the book, it's all about math. You wouldn't believe it, would you? Psalms is the same. The introductory psalm gives you the themes that will be there for the rest of Psalms. And what themes have we seen? There's benefits of being righteous and the perils of being wicked. Very stark contrast there. That's the themes. And then the rest of Psalms follows that up in each and every Psalm, doesn't it? 
clearly seen. But you only really pick that up and think about the whole of Psalms, if you remember that Psalms 1 is just the introduction to the rest of the Psalms. If you don't understand that, it takes on a different context. And I think it has more meaning if you think that it applies to the whole of Psalms, if you think about it that way. So whatever you're thinking or feeling, you can find something in Psalms that will speak to you. Where someone has gone before you with the same joy, or the same rage, or the same thankfulness, or the same despair. It's all in there. My Bible lists the overall topics for each of the five volumes that were originally collated together. Any guesses on volume one? What's the main theme? Or two themes? Or three? Someone pick, pick something. Call something out. Creation? Verse one. Something in verse one. <laughs> yeah, verse one's a good idea. The overall topics covered in, in um, the first volume of books is lament and distress. That's the, that's the majority of what the psalmist writes is lament and distress. That's the broad overall thing. Volume 2, lament and distress. That's the theme here. Volume 3, the tone darkens and God's justice is questioned. Volume 4, God's goodness is remembered. And Volume 5, declarations that God does answer prayer and fulfills his promise. So who knew those were like that? I mean, I've read Psalms several times from beginning to end and I've never considered that they were in five books. I've never considered that they were ordered like someone releases an album and the music flows in a way that they want. Psalms flows in the way that they wanted it to be collated so that it overall makes sense. And the wrap-up Psalm, Psalm 150, is the closing part, isn't it? And that is all praise to God. The whole thing. All about praising God. And in all the lamenting and sadness and despairing psalms, there are snippets, aren't there? There's some that start out like that and they end with the opposite. They end praising God because of God's goodness. They end with the psalmist forcing himself to put his trust in God, reminding himself of the good things that God has done and the powerful work that he's done. And when I sit back and I think about psalms as a whole, and now, after preparing the sermon, which started out with only Psalm 1, <laughs> uh, God's amazing, isn't it? When I sit back and I think about the whole of Psalms, that broad, the broad themes that are in there, and I think about the Psalms I've read and the topics that I find in there, it reminds me of my life. Not the lament and distress part so much, but <laughs> there's topics in there that relate to my life and the seasons of life particularly. And when I see other people's lives, there's seasons, like Jake mentioned Stefan, who I know as well. Um, he's, he's had a, a hard season in life, and he's coming into a good season of life. And we all have those things. I think sometimes, even day to day, um, I think we go through start psalm, from start to finish in one day some days. Uh, like the psalmist, we have a choice. We can choose to walk towards being the dead tree like on the first slide, or we can choose to become full of life. The psalmist chose to delight in God and God's word. But along the way, the journey of life, 
There's a lot of psalms written that speak of hardship, don't they? Not of blessing so much. Psalm 88, for example. But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I'm helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friends to shun me. My companions have become darkness. These are not the words of the same happy guy that wrote Psalm 1, I don't think. Definitely not the same headspace as the guy that wrote Psalm 1 saying the righteous prosper in all that they do. Yet he still cries out to God. He still prays to God. Despite feeling so overwhelmed by the things that are coming his way, he still puts his trust in God. He still hopes in God's goodness. And this psalm is one that we need to be able to interpret properly, don't we? God doesn't literally cast our souls away as if we are nothing. The psalmist is just expressing how he feels. He feels as if God has thrown him onto the garbage heap. But to take these words just from this psalm and kind of form our belief about who God is, if that's the only part of the Bible you ever read, what message do you take away from that? You start to think that God, he doesn't care about you. He, he will just throw you away. He's going to pound you over and over with his anguish and terrors, you know, like a flood. If we only take that and we take it literally, then we get a distorted view of God that's not right. We have to delight in God's word. We have to look further than just this one psalm. We have to look further than just the verse of the day that you get on your app or a little passage that you might read in the morning. There's more to God's word that explains who God is. We need to have a bigger picture, like Psalms 1 is an introduction and the whole of Psalms has themes we need to understand. The whole word of God shows us who God is. If we pull out one verse or one psalm, it's not enough to describe who God is. And then there's these kind of psalms, isn't there? Psalm 92. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, the melody of the lyre, for you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. And here the tide has turned, hasn't it? It's amazing. This is where he's jumping up and down and dancing around his room. Kind of happy, blessed, I'm joyful because things are going good for me. A completely different vibe, isn't it? Life is so full of ups and downs. In a single day we can feel a variety of things. Many times I've driven to work singing worship songs in the car. It's about probably a 15-minute drive, 17 minutes, 20 minutes is two trains dump. And then <laughs> uh, it gives me more time to think. That's how I try and think about it. <laughs> I'm not delayed getting to work. There's more time to think. But I can sing in the car, and it's amazing. I can praise God. I can worship God. I can pray for people. I can prepare my heart for the day. I get out of my car at work and I can walk into my office and turn on my computer humming the thing and before my computer's even warmed up, someone comes in the door and see the 
one or the other, isn't it? When someone walks into your office and they say, there's something wrong with this, this machine's broken down, we need to fix it right now. Oh, you haven't turned your computer on yet, sorry. Uh, yeah, good. Where do you go after that? I was just singing songs to God saying, thank you, God, you're so great, I worship you. And then here's this guy that just want to grab his neck and leave me alone for five minutes while I start my work. Not good enough, is it? There's small things, they tip us over the edge. I got home the other day from work and I was tired. It was a long day. I was hungry, hadn't had anything to eat since lunch, that's normal. And I just really, really felt like quiet. And my kids are well, two of them are sitting here, they're pretty quiet right now. Let's just say they won't ever work as librarians. They enjoy noisiness. It's like school camp every day at our house with five kids. And I get home and I'm just like, oh, a, a sigh, because it's loud. I didn't feel like loud. And then I go to heat my dinner up because everyone else had already finished. And I get my dinner out and I put it in the bowl and I'm about to put it in the microwave. And I, it's just so much noise. I thought, you know what? I'll put some of them in the bathroom. Not to lock them in there so it's quiet. <laughs> but, <laughs> I ran the bath, okay? <laughs> I'm not like that. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, of course I'm not. So I ran the bath, and I, so I put one in the bath and one in the shower in there, so that's two out of five, so the noise comes down to about half, okay? And then, but in running the bath, I went to put down the blind. The whole blind fell down into the bath. Does anyone else have these days? <laughs> Never. Yeah, God blesses you, Willem. <laughs> oh, dear. And what do you do with that? Do you get angry, or do you just, because oh, then my dinner, which I'm hungry for, is still sitting there, I had to run around, get the drill, find the screws, put it back up. I don't want the neighbours seeing my kids in the bathroom, so I had to do that before my dinner. It's one of those days. There are seasons in life, aren't there? And there are some seasons that seem, they're just full of joy and everything seems to go our way and God just blesses us in amazing ways. And there are other seasons, if you've ever read Dark Night of the Soul, there are other seasons where God just feels like his presence is not there, even though he is. It feels as though he's not there. And everything that comes across our path just seems to hit us again and again. And it threatens to sink us, I suppose, in a way. We have seasons like that. These things aren't new. You don't have to feel like you're the only one that goes through good times and be afraid to share that with people who are going through bad times. And you don't have to feel like you're the only one who goes through bad times. If you read the Psalms, you'll see that all of those seasons are mentioned one way or another. And in the end, in the end of it all, God is faithful. And the Psalms say that he does indeed answer prayer. God is faithful through each and every season in your life. And sometimes it really does feel like he's not there. And sometimes it feels like you're riding a bike downhill with the wind in your hair and the sun on your face. Sometimes it's an absolute joy and sometimes it's a very conscious choice to stick close to God. But there's still a choice. Always that choice. Righteousness or wickedness. There's still stepping stones leading in each direction even though sometimes it feels a bit grey area-ish. Still the option of having a tree that's connected to Christ and nourished and alive and there's still the option of moving into that 
dead side where you become like chaff because you have no nourishment each and every day to supply what you need. The psalm gives us a view of both trees and insight into where the stepping stones lead to. We leave Psalms for a little bit and look into the New Testament and read from Romans chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All have sinned. All have sinned. Psalm 1 talks about those three types of people, doesn't it? Do you remember what they were? The wicked and the sinners and the scoffers or mockers. Here in Romans, after Jesus has died and risen again, we're told that every single one of us has sinned. There is no distinction, it says which means we've already been found guilty of our crimes. And according to Psalm 1, righteous people shouldn't hang out with us if we are sinners. In Psalms, they had the law, didn't they? They had to keep all the rules to be righteous. All the rules. And there were a lot, a lot of rules. But Jesus changed all that, didn't he? Do you see verse 22? Righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's faith. Our belief in Jesus. Believing that he is the Son of God and that he died and rose again for us, grants us righteousness. Not because we've kept all the rules. Not because we've said no to things over and over and over. But because we are justified by grace. God's grace as a gift. It's a gift. And do you know why it had to be a gift? Because we are totally and utterly incapable of keeping all the rules so that we can be righteous. God knows that. So because he loves us in his grace, he sent Jesus to this earth to be our saviour so that we be could become the people that he made us to be so that we could become righteous in his sight. Jesus was perfect. He fulfilled all the rules. And through his death, a new system was put in place, wasn't it? A new covenant. That covenant relies on our faith, our belief in Jesus. In that belief, we receive the gift that God has given us, redemption. Though we have fallen short, and fall short all the time, we've still got that. Gift. A gift from God for us so that we can be who he made us to be. So what about Psalms then? Well, in the context of all that God has done through Jesus, we don't really need to try and keep all the laws that are written in the Old Testament, although some of them are quite good to live by. We can live by faith, trusting in Jesus. 
But as Jill spoke about last week, we need to abide in that, don't we? We can't, it still not works, I suppose. People end up trying to do dot points of how to live a Christian life. And living by faith is not always like that. We have to abide in the Word of God. We have to stay in that. We have to abide in Christ. We have to stay in Him. We have to walk with Him each and every day. It's not read the Word of God and sing songs in the car and then try and kill people at work. It's not how it works, is it? It's abiding in Christ. We're supposed to be filled with Him each and every day as we go through whatever we do. Our lifestyle has to become Christ. We have to have the same mind and attitude as Christ says in Philippians. But on the flip side, Psalm 1 still applies. If you walk in wickedness and you choose not to delight in God and Jesus and the Word of God, then when, not if, but when you come before God, you won't have accepted His gift. You won't be righteous before Him. And you won't be able to stand with a congregation of the righteous that will enter into heaven with him. Whether you look at the laws of the Old Testament or live by faith from the New Testament, God is holy. We sang about that this morning. He's pure. He's perfect. Nothing impure can be in his presence. It's very simple. God hasn't changed since Psalm 1 was written. God hasn't changed since Romans 3 was written. God hasn't changed when I wrote this sermon. And God won't change tomorrow again either. He's the same. He's holy all the time. We are incapable of keeping all the laws to be righteous. We need Jesus so that we can be righteous. So that we, we can be with God. We need to choose Jesus each and every day, don't we? If you take it upon yourself to read through Psalms, remember the seasons of life. Remember that in each season God is faithful and that he does answer prayer and fulfill all his promises. Remember that Jesus is his gift, the gift that was promised, a promise that has been fulfilled. And now all you need to do is accept Jesus and abide with him each and every day. As a tree, you'll be much healthier when you are planted by the stream and nourished by God. Why don't we just take a minute now, just for a, a minute of personal time with God, individually, just to ask God to show you how you can better be connected to the stream that he is, how you can say no to something and choose something else instead that is better, something that's of God. I'll just give everyone a minute to pray. And I'll pray to close. Heavenly Father, you are holy. Nothing changes that, God. Nothing changes you. You were the same all those years ago that someone sat with all the time, put them in order, and collected them into volume. I'll be the same as the Apostle Paul wrote Romans, trying to encourage them, trying to convince them to just by faith. 
God is just as holy. During this last week, as I prepared this message, it's your word. Tomorrow, God, as we head back to work or school or whatever we do during the day, God, you are holy still. Choices, God, lead us either towards you or away from you. God, I pray that you would be very clear with us what you require from us. I pray that you would give us courage, strength, and faith. Sometimes, God, when we feel we don't have it in us, we require strength. Sometimes we can only do less than what we normally do. Sometimes we can do a lot more than we can do. God, I pray this week is coming and pray you to remind us we are all in seasons of life. But God, no matter what season we are in, you are there, right there with us. We are giving the things that you need each day while we stay plugged into you and we live in faith. God, help us this week to live for you. Help us to encourage and time. Help us to love other people with your love. Help us, God, when we feel like we don't have it in us, to turn to you and ask for your strength to do it anyway. God, nourish us and give us your life, my friend. Next week, when we come to testimony time, I just pray we would have an abundance, God, testimony to your goodness and your greatness and the way it has worked in our lives over the last week. Thank you, God, for this time. I pray, God, that you would grow the seeds that have been planted in our hearts and our minds, and I pray that you would take them, grow them, and use them, God, for your glory. Jesus, I pray. Amen. We pray you've enjoyed this message from Life Waters Church in Rainbow. For more information about our church, please go to our website at www.lifebuilderschurch.org.au. Until next time, God bless.